Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John 17, John chapter 17. Uh, and I want to really encourage you, if you don't have a physical copy of the scriptures, uh, to get one. I know that there's, uh, I'm very thankful for technology that allows us to have uh, the, the scriptures on our phone or tablet or some other kind of smart device. But if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, I just really want to encourage you to grab one. We have a bookstore here right next to the commons. You know, we can outfit you with one there. Um, but, but it's great because when you bring it, you can make notes and, and mark things in it and things that stand out to you and highlight different verses. And then also you can read it during the week, which is great. So just, yeah, there you go. Okay. Somebody back there does that. You can read with them. They'll read with you. During the week. John chapter 17, um, I want us to remember what's happening here. We're in the last night and the life of, of Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's been in those last moments, or at least they knew that moment was on the horizon. Um, but, but people who are in that time of their life or in those moments, they don't waste words. Um, they, they don't waste time talking about things that are not important. Everything uh, really kind of gets clear and crystallized in those moments. All the irrelevant stuff kind of fades away, and they really start talking about the things that they really want to say to each other before they're gone. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, now, he knows he's coming back, so this is not like a final goodbye, but there is something that's terminal about this moment. So just to kind of catch us up, uh, to, so we don't just rush into the passage, but so that we get a really good frame and context and really kind of step into uh, the moment here in chapter 15 and chapter 16, chapter 17. He's hours away from giving his life on the cross. And we look back at that moment and we we can sing amazing grace about that moment, um, but, but he's walking towards it. He's walking towards it, and he's going to die on it like no one else has ever died on it before, and no one has ever given their life in the way that he's going to, going to give his life. And so all of history we know now is really leveraging on this moment. Our future with God is hanging on this moment that's about to happen, and so Jesus has his closest guys around him. He's laying his heart out to them. He says in chapter 15, listen, it's so important. It's massively critical. You have to stay connected to me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he goes into chapter 16, and he tells them really clearly, in this world, you're going to have trouble. It's not a what if, it's going to happen. But he tells them, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And then as soon as he speaks those words, he starts in on this prayer. So this prayer is coming out of Jesus' declaration, don't lose heart, take heart. You're going to have trouble, but I've overcome the world. So he knows he's going to endure the cross. He knows that he will conquer Satan, sin, and death. He knows that he will one time for all time be the perfect sacrifice and payment for the sin and rebellion of all who would believe. And then he looks towards heaven 
and he prays in John chapter 17. And I, I don't think Jesus necessarily has a uh, systematized outline for this prayer. Um, I did hear somebody preach on this, and I thought it was really helpful because they talked about there are these kind of concentric circles that Jesus begins to pray uh, in, the, in this prayer. And, and, and first, he prays to the Father. And this is what Matt covered uh, last week, if you were here. He's saying, I am for you. The Son is saying to the Father, I am so for you. I am for your glory. My heart's cry, Jesus is saying, is my connection with you. And he's showing us Jesus is the real kind of starting place for our prayers. Our relationship with the Father, keeping connection current, letting that shape the rest of our lives, letting that shape our worship starting with just saying, I'm just so for you. I'm for your glory. There's nothing more important in my life than the connection I have with you, Father. And then Jesus expands this, his prayer. He begins to pray for his disciples, the guys that are closest to him, the guys that are in the room with him in that moment. And the third prayer um, begins in verse 20. We're gonna get to that uh, this morning. He prays for all believers, So he prays first his connection with the Father. I'm for your glory. He prays for those who are closest to him. And then he prays for all believers. So any any believers? Any believers here? Oh, there we go. This side. How are you guys doing? Okay, one guy. Thank you. Glad. So uh, pretty amazing thought. I don't know... uh, what you were hoping for today, uh, even if the Cardinals win. This is better than that, that Jesus has prayed for you. Yes? Good? Okay, great. It's, it's 922, a little early. It's okay. But that's, that's the highlight of really what we want to kind of get our arms around is that Jesus has actually prayed for us the last night on planet Earth. Jesus prayed for you and he prayed for me if you're, if you're a believer. It's not the main point, but I think it's a pretty big deal. And so then we're going to look here now at what we see in, in, in chapter 17. So the first six verses Matt covered, so we're not going to go back there only to know that the frame of what's being prayed for and through is the, is the glory of God, um, and which is a great just kind of prayer uh, for us to be starting with too. Um, and that we would complete the work that our Father has given to us. Uh, so look at verse 6, if you would. This is Jesus praying. He says this, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Jesus here is acknowledging the sovereignty of God in salvation. He's acknowledging uh, the role of the Father in the salvation of those who would, who would believe. Verse, verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Jesus is saying the faith that they have the, the, the trust in me that they have, the confidence in me that they have is a gift from the Father. Father, you did that. 
You did that. And, and that Jesus has revealed to them the very character of the Father, meaning they have no way of knowing who you are, Father, unless you start that, unless you send me, and, and, and my work is completed in that I've shown them who you are. So, so really, it, we, you have to, again, get the frame of what Matt was, was teaching last week, where it's like, this whole thing just starts with the glory of God, the revelation of who God is. And he's saying, I have revealed to them uh, your, the name. And the name is essentially, they know the character of the Father. And I, I've talked about this just as we've been working through John, that Jesus shows up just to show us who God is and what God's all about. You want to know what God would say? You want to know what God would do? You want to know what God would think? Look at the person of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, I have shown them the very character of God. I've shown them your name. He's saying, Father, they have come to believe that you and no one else sent me and no one else. This is, a, this is pivotal uh, in understanding what Christianity, what true Christianity is, that the Father and no one else sent Jesus and no one else into the world. There's four things that are revealed here. There's four things that are revealed. That Jesus' life and ministry is only explainable by God's gifting. Jesus' life and ministry is only explainable by God's gifting. That Jesus' words are the very words of God. Jesus' words are the very words of God. Jesus was not just here as like a free agent but his words are the very words of the Father. Jesus came from God and is God. This is what we see. This is what John is showing us all about the life of Jesus all throughout his gospel, and that Jesus is God's mission to the world. Those are the four things that Jesus is saying that are revealed here. Look at verse nine. He says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for, their, for they are yours. Now, that might seem like kind of an odd verse. Like, Jesus, why are you not praying for the world? Uh, I, I mean, that seems kind of like the whole point. Like, those are the people. Like, those are the people that you should be praying for. Those are the people who are in the most trouble. Why would you not be praying for them? We're going to get to that in, in a moment. But look at verse 10. It says this. It says, all I have is yours. And, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. He says, protect them by the power of of your name. One commentator says this. He says, the major instrument for the coming of God's kingdom is a church that is kept in the name that God gave to Jesus, meaning the church that faithfully proclaims the divinity of Jesus. The, the, the Father's name is I am, given to Jesus. So, that, you know, if you remember through John, uh, if you've been with us, there's several places where Jesus says, I am, I am the bread of life, I am, uh, and he go, the light of the world. He goes on and with these I am statements. So the Father's name is I am given to Jesus. So the church is to proclaim the full 
undiluted deity of the completely human Jesus Messiah, who is also the eternal Son of God. When the Father keeps the name in this, when the, when the Father keeps the church in this name, and in all that name means, the kingdom of God is present, alive, and at work in the world. So that's what he's praying for the church. Keep the, the, the church, keep them, keep them centered on the name. Keep them centered on the name that you have given me. That's our prayer. Lord, keep us centered on the name. Keep us there. There's all these other things that, that want to come in and all these other names that want to compete and all these other ideas that want to compete and all these other agendas and objectives that want to keep. Lord, keep us centered on the name. The verse 12 says this, I'm going to read the verse 17. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Okay, big prayer there. Because Jesus is saying, don't take them out of the world. But protect, but protect them or keep them from the evil one. And this is how. By continuing to sanctify them. He's talking about the process of God making us who we are in Christ. God making us into the holy ones that we are in Christ. It's the conforming process of taking us from who we are the moment we come to Jesus in, in repentance and faith and shaping us so that shaping that in us so that we truly become all of who God made us when we put our faith in Jesus. Jesus is praying for a growing awareness in all who would believe of how deeply we are loved by the Father, like He is loved by the Father, and that His joy. It's interesting because he could have he could have prayed for any marker there. He could have prayed for any characteristic there. He could have prayed for any kind of spiritual fruit to grow there. But he says, I want their, I want their joy. I, I, the same way that I have joy in my relationship with you, Dad, I want them to have that type of joy, which is an amazing just fruit or marker of Christian maturity. It's always kind of uh, interesting to me, and it kind of serves me when, when I know people who've followed Jesus for a long time, but there just doesn't seem to be any joy. Because if you've known Jesus for a long, long time, there should just be joy. It should just be growing and growing and growing. And that's interesting here too, because Jesus knows, you know, he's praying this out loud in front of his disciples, and he knows these guys are going to scatter. They're going to fail. 
they are going to deny, but he is still praying this kind of prophetic fidelity over them, despite all their failures, and despite your failure, and despite my failure. He's praying for their joy. He's praying for their protection. He knows full well what's going to happen in the, in, the, in, the, in the hours to come. But he continues to pray this. And no sooner does he pray for our joy than he addresses the hate that his followers will experience in the world. Look back at verse 14 and 15 with me real quick. Um, he says this, he says, I want them to have the full measure of joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I am in the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Christians live in this kind of tension space. They, they live in between the joy of the Lord and the hatred of the world towards them and their God and his word. If you're doing it right, that's where you'll live. You'll live in that tension between the joy of the Lord and a world that is against you. And so Jesus was praying, I want their joy to be so full that they will endure and overcome the evil one. It's interesting because he doesn't pray, uh, he doesn't pray, get them out of the world. In fact, keep them in the world. Keep them in the world, but protect them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the dark places, but protect them from the prince of darkness. What, one of the things that, that's always the most remarkable to me about Jesus, and certainly one of the most scandalous things about Jesus, and we see this all throughout John's gospel, um, is that Jesus doesn't move away from what's unclean or untouchable. In fact, he's able to move towards them. And in fact, he's able to touch those who were deemed untouchable and not get any of the disease on him. The, the, the scandal of the, of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the hero of the story touches and serves and cares for the one that the priest and the Levite could not. And so, Jesus models for us as his followers, as his people, and he's saying, I want people in the middle of the darkness, surrounded and grounded in truth in such a way and filled with such joy that the world, that the enemy can't take them down. Even though they are in the middle of darkness, they keep growing into the identity of Christ and they keep growing into the love that the Father has for them. Now, it's important here because you gotta understand how the prayer connects because we have people who have no problem being in the darkness. They're like, yeah, darkness, no problem, love it. That's where I live, it's great. And he's not just saying, go out there and get in as much darkness as you can. He is saying, You can't be faithful to what I'm calling you to. You can't be a Christian in the darkness without being encased in the truth of God so that you can grow in the darkness into someone who can shine for Jesus. So it's not just, hey, go out there, get in the darkness. No, 
go into the darkness encased in the truth. Jesus was famously accused uh, for worldliness. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, they said that he was a glutton. They said he was a drunk. He's a friend of uh, tax collectors, which is maybe worse than you think it sounds, uh, and sinners. That's just like a big category for bad people, right? Though that's who Jesus spent the time with. Um, but Jesus was not seduced by this world because he was so in love with the Father. And he was so sure of how much he was loved by the Father. He was so locked into the Father and his mission of making that love known. It consumed him so that he could be sent into the world, but not of it. And as followers of Jesus, we are sent into the world, utterly convinced totally consumed by God's love for us to love the people of the world in such a way that we do not love the ways of the world. Can I say that again? We are sent into the world utterly convinced, totally consumed by God's love for us to love the people of the world in such a way that we love the people of the world, but we do not love the ways of the world. You see the distinction? That's what Jesus is praying for here. It, it, it's the first part of the prayer, honestly. That's why what, that passage that Matt taught was so important. The connection to the Father, which is why Jesus starts there. And he says it out loud. He's like, I want everybody around to get this, to hear this. This connection to the Father is so important because that's what enables Jesus to have the type of ministry that he had to the unclean. It will be the only way that we can be in the world, in the dark places, and shine in the light if we are connected in that way to the Father. You cannot be disconnected from the truth or from the family of God and be a faithful witness in the world. You cannot be. You cannot be disconnected from the truth of God. You cannot be disconnected from the family of God and be a faithful witness in the world. And Jesus understands that, which is why he, he doesn't pray that the Father would save his guys from all the craziness of the world. He prays that they would be sanctified by truth in the midst of the craziness so that they can be protected from the evil one. John would pick up on this idea uh, later on. He, he writes in 1 John chapter 2, uh, he says this. He says, do not love the world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world... You do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. They're not from the Father. They are from the world. And, and this world is, is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. I, you can break this passage down saying that the world is continually offering to you and I would say pushing you to a desire to indulge, a desire to acquire, and a desire to impress. I was a marketing major in college. Everything I studied, everything that I was supposed to be good at, 
was centered around these things. If you want to sell something to somebody, you play on their desire to indulge, their desire to acquire, and their desire to impress. And every one of us, every one of us, has lived at some point towards at least one of those things or maybe all of those things. And if we're really, really honest, we would say, they've all left me wanting. They've all let me down. I was with a friend yesterday and he was talking to me about uh, a guy that he works with and uh, the, he's, he's a single guy, makes a lot of money. And uh, he said, you know, he, he just, he wanted a particular vehicle and it was like a $110,000 car. And he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm single. I don't have kids. I, I, I'm on my own. I'm making all this money. I'm going to get this. And so he buys this vehicle, he gets it. And then he said to my friend, his coworker, he said, you know what? It's just Okay. And he's like, it was a huge letdown because I had saved all this money. I got every single bell and whistle. I got the flagship model of this car. I sunk all this money into it. And it's just okay. And that is the cycle of the world. But yet still, it plays on our desire to indulge, desire to acquire desire to impress. And Jesus says, listen, don't take us out of the world or don't take us away, but let them be sanctified in the midst of it so that they'll be protected by the evil, evil one. As followers of Jesus, we have the words of Jesus, which means we have the very words of God, which means we have ultimate truth, which sanctifies, which sets apart. Uh, Augustine has said, sanctify them in truth means make them holy other than by the gift of the Holy Spirit and sound doctrines. For sound doctrines give knowledge of God and sanctify the soul. The idea is that the church would penetrate the world, that we would be everywhere in the world, in the culture, where people are, not just huddled together, uh, that we would all just stay in one room and just hang on until Jesus comes. That's not what Jesus is praying for. He's praying, I want you to get in the world. And yes, the world is tough. And yes, the world is rough. And yes, the world is anti-God. And it's going to be anti-you if you are for God and for truth. But that's okay as long as truth sanctifies you. Because the world can't take you down. It can beat you up, but it can't take you down. And, And in fact, if the world does beat you up, you're in good company. Because the world beat up Jesus, and it didn't take him down. And he changed everything. And so lastly, as we end here, Jesus prays for the believers and his heartbeat prayer is that they would be one, that they would be unified so that the whole world could know about Jesus. Look at verse uh, 20. It says this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And skip down to verse 23. It says this, I 
in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So he prays for himself, Jesus does. He prays for the 11. And then he prays for all of us. And he does pray for the world. And the way that he prays for the world is that we as believers would have a unified heart for Jesus and for one another because when we do, according to what Jesus prays here, the world will know who he is and the world will know what he's all about. When all of these believers, Jesus is saying, have a common heart of love for each other, the world will know Jesus. The, the whole prayer of John chapter 17, the whole prayer of John chapter 17 is this. Father, may I, your holy son, Jesus is saying, be glorified. May the church be centered on me, he, Jesus says. May the devil be defeated. May the truth be sought. May the church be united so that, Father, this huge world out there that you love so much would be moved by these foundational realities into faith, into your community, the church. And Jesus says, be united with me and with the Father. When people believe that God and no one else sent Jesus and no one else in the mission of salvation, then people are finally at home with life's central reality, which is why the church does everything she can from faithful preaching and praying to loving outreach and service to seek faith in a deceived and uncentered world. It's interesting here. Jesus doesn't pray for all the non-believers. He prays for all the believers because the hope for the non-believers is the believers in the world. What Jesus is praying, let's just make this super personal because I think we can. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, if all the believers in the East Valley love each other, like the Father and the Son love each other, the non-believers in the East Valley will never know what hit them because Jesus is gonna show up and change everything in the city. That's the prayer that Jesus has for the world. And here's how it's going to happen. One, a miracle of God, honestly. Just the supernatural power and presence of God. Jesus has to pray for this. So do you think we should too? If Jesus has to pray for it, we should be praying for it. And the other way that I think this is going to happen is just the natural course of history where the ease of following Jesus is slowly stripped away. When you go to places in the world where the church is persecuted, believers are not picking fights with each other over the songs they sing or the podcasts they listen to or don't listen to or the books they read or don't read or how they pray in their gatherings. You just get in those environments where the church is being persecuted and they're just like, do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus. We gotta lock arms. We gotta love each other. Because for us to say that, for us to gather together around that, it really means something. In some places, it, it means our lives to say that. 
When, when freedoms start getting stripped away and when pressure comes, which will most likely happen in this country because it's happening in all other countries around the world, the commonality of I love Jesus and I believe that he is the son of God and the king of kings becomes true. Now listen, does that mean that we minimize theological differences? I'm not saying that at all. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Do, do we minimize the way that we interpret scripture? I don't think that. Do, does that mean that we don't hold on to our theological convictions? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. We have convictions in theological positions as a church, this church in particular, that I just think automatically put us in a smaller tribe. However, because we believe in this Jesus-centeredness, this Christocentricness, and a desire to be faithful to his word and his ways, I believe that we can have and should have the biggest heart for what Jesus' heart is in this prayer for us. I, I do think it's interesting that as soon as we start talking about unity, we start talking about all the reasons that we can't be unified with other confessing Christians. I think that reveals something. Clearly, there is tension in this when we start talking about this. And Jesus could have prayed anything in this moment for his church. But he knew the thing that we're gonna struggle with is this. And we're gonna talk about it. Um, actually, we're gonna, we're gonna take another run at this passage um, next week as well too. And there's tension in this too. But what I'm saying is, and I think what Jesus is saying is here, Jesus is saying, I need to be central. I need to be at the center. I need to be the story. And when I am, mission becomes clear. And it's not gonna be about, well, where do you go to church? And what Bible study are you in? And what denomination are you? It's gonna be, is it Jesus Christ alone? Me too, awesome. How can I love you? How can I serve you? Jesus is saying here through his word, there's something about that experience and the world coming to know that the Father sent the Son into the world. He puts those two things together. And when that starts happening, when we become one as they are one, then the world starts to know who Jesus is. And I want to see that happen. Our oneness is not just for the sake of this nice little fellowship. Our oneness is so that together we can be a voice to the city for the fame of Jesus and Jesus alone. I think God's prayer for the valley is that there would be such a heart for Jesus and for one another among his kids that people couldn't go anywhere around town without hearing about Jesus on any given day. They go to work, somebody's talking about Jesus. They go out to lunch, man, there's somebody talking about Jesus. They go to the gym, somebody's there talking about Jesus. They go to the Suns game, somebody's there talking about Jesus. Probably praying that Devin Booker doesn't get hurt. <laughs> but everywhere they go, there's somebody there talking about Jesus. There's somebody there who's loving them the way that Jesus would. And that sooner or later, people start thinking about, man, what in the world is up with this Jesus? Who is Jesus? I need somebody to talk to me about Jesus. That's the prayer. 
That's the idea. That's the vision that Jesus has as he's praying this in John 17. The presence of Jesus is experienced through prophetic proclamation and through the mutual love of Jesus' followers for one another who reveal the character of Jesus in the way that they live their lives. Jesus is saying the way that believers treat each other is an essential component of proclaiming Jesus to the world. He's saying, my love for you on display by your love for one another leads to the conversion of the world. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. And that happens when we live out this prayer that Jesus is praying over us, that all of us believers would start sharing one heart, and that heart is we are children of the Father because of the work of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have faith in Jesus, and we want to be about what he is all about. And I realize, trust me, I realize this raises all kinds of questions and conversations and maybe even objections. And you know what? All of that's okay. And you can take all of that up with Jesus because he said all this stuff. It's in red in the Bible. So I'm not bothered by it. And like I said, we're actually going to take another run at this passage because I just think like whatever Jesus said on the last night of his life probably deserves some extra attention from us. I want to end though real quick with what makes all of this possible. Because Jesus clarifies it in verse 3. So 17, look at verse 3. He says this. Now this is eternal life. That they know you. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He says this is eternal life. If you're in the room, you're listening to Jesus pray this, and he says this is eternal life, you are like leaning, leaning in because it's what everybody wants. I want eternal life. I want full life here and after here. And he says, all right, well, this is it. That they know you. Because this whole prayer, this, this God prayer is God-focused. I want them to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's eternal life. Having relationship with the one true God. The Greek word there is gnosis. It means to know, but it's like a, a personal experience, a firsthand um, acquaintance. It's, um, it's a deep, deep intimacy. No, it's not just like I know about, but it's like I have a gnosis of you, that you gnosis the Father, the one true God, that you gnosis Jesus Christ, the one whom he sent, that you know him. This is what Jesus has prayed for you and me, church. These two realities would be central in the church. Verse 26, this is the last verse, I swear. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order. These are the two things. That the love you have for me may be in them. This is what Jesus wants for us. And that I myself may be in them. God's love in us and Jesus in us. The love of the Father for the Son will be in us. And that Jesus himself will be central in all of our lives. That he'll be in us. When he, when he gets to the, to the end, when he's saying, this is what I want. This is what I'm praying for. 
I want that, the love that we have, Dad, and me. I want me in there with them, in them. I want, I want to be in them as close as I can be. And so our message and our mission is, is God's love for Jesus and for us believed and passed on to one another in mutual love that the presence and the power of Jesus himself is the center of our lives. And when these two things, a trust in Christ's love for us and a trust in Christ's presence with us, when those two things are central, the church will be alive and Jesus' prayer for us will be answered. Let's pray. The band comes. Lord, I'm just, uh, I'm overwhelmed at what you have prayed over us. And God, I'm overwhelmed at what you uh, desire for us. And God, you could have said anything in that moment. And there are so many things that are important. And God, I'm not at all trying to diminish uh, just the entirety of what you have said to us in your word. But God, in this moment, I'm just struck uh, by what you said in that moment. And um, God, we want to be the kind of church that is an answer to your prayer. God, we pray all the time that you would answer our prayers. And um, God, I'm asking that you would help us to be an answer to your prayer. And God, that we would be one. God, that we would be one uh, in our assurance and confidence of the love that you have for us. And God, that we would be one in our love for one another. And uh, that will not come about through our striving and that will not come about in our own power or effort. It will only come about by a work of your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you just do something undeniably crazy, undeniably you? God, not that we would brag or boast about our oneness or our unity, but God, that we would brag and boast only and give glory only to you and what you have done. So Father, we need you. God, we need you. Help us. We pray these things in your name.